but it's, you're gonna have to be patient. You know, they say good things come to those who wait. We're gonna take a few minutes, more than a few minutes, to get to the resurrection, because here's what we're doing. I'm anticipating that, people in the room and people with us online, some of you are wrestling not with, can I believe in the resurrection? You're wrestling first with, can I believe there's a God? So statistics vary. People generally tell us about 83% of Americans do believe there's a God, but that number fluctuates depending on how you put the question and what you ask. Sometimes it's as low as 60%, like if you define him as the biblical God, maybe. But a lot of Americans believe there's a God. However, there are plenty who don't, and maybe some of you from time to time have struggles. Wait a minute, what have I believed? Can I really believe this? Are there really justifiable reasons for my faith? So I'm going to start with, I'll put it up for you, first, why we believe there's a God, that is, arguments for theism, and secondly, why I believe the Christian gospel is, among all the rest of the world's religions, the one that comes from, that represents the truth of that God. Let's get started. Why we believe there's a God. Now, most people who believe there's a God, that would be most of us, um, are not scholars. That would be most of us. We have not done careful research. We've not spent years sifting through the data and evaluating, can I really believe there's a God or can I not? Yet we believe in God. Why? And my answer is that you have intuitively, and God made it this way so you can intuitively, so even a child can understand and arrive at this. You have intuitively arrived at what are some of the classic arguments for the existence of God, the cosmological argument that argues from the existence of the cosmos, it all had to come from somewhere. And intuitively, you have reasoned inside of your head, look at this, look at this. It had to have a beginning. It had to come from somewhere, and that somewhere had to be pretty amazing. Or you have intuitively anticipated and understood the teleological argument for the existence of God, which says there's design, there's evidence of purpose, things have been created, there's a maker. I see signs that somebody's hands, somebody's intelligence, massive intelligence were on this. God's fingerprints are stamped all over the universe and you have noticed them and arrived at, hmm, I think there's a God. Or you've noticed that there must be fixed objective moral standards on the planet. There are certain things that are just right, and there are certain things that are just wrong. But where do you get that if there's no divine lawgiver? There are no rights and there are no wrongs if there isn't a God. And intuitively you have said, I think there are things that are right in every culture, in every circumstance, no matter if everybody thinks they're wrong, they're right. And I think there are things that are wrong. So I think there's a God. I think there's a divine lawgiver. You have intuited the cosmological argument, it all comes from somewhere. The teleological argument, it's got amazing, incredible design stamped all over it. And the moral argument, I think there's objective above us, right and wrong. And therefore, and there are other arguments, we're, we're sticking to those three because we want to get to the resurrection. Therefore, you believe there is a God. Well, you're doing well. But I know you're eager to get to the resurrection. We're going to take a few minutes and look at each of those three arguments because some of you are maybe wobbly in your belief in God and some of you maybe are atheistic and don't believe and some of you are agnostic and maybe could believe. I want to help you all out if I can so you believe there's a great being who made us and all things. So first, the cosmological argument. Now, astronomers and cosmologists tell us pretty much across the board that the universe had a beginning. And one of the great maxims of philosophy is, out of nothing, nothing comes. So 
It had a beginning. Where did it come from? It didn't come out of nothing. There are some people who just say, well, it spontaneously generated out of nothing. I can't wrap my mind around that. I can't bring myself to believe that. They're supposed to be doing science and they're coming up with theories like that. There are other people who say, well, the universe is eternal and prior to the Big Bang, it it existed in different forms. That's not science either. No one has been there. No one can test that. It's not falsifiable. That's a guess. Um, But the cosmological argument says it does have a beginning. It came from somewhere. And let me put up a, a statement for you. The cosmological argument reasons that a universe with a beginning demands a first cause. That first cause must be above and beyond, and it must transcend the universe, and it must be outside of the universe. Let me, let me uh, give you another statement here, and I'll dissect this in a little bit. The cause of the universe, and it must have a cause, must be uncaused. If it was caused, then we haven't found the first cause yet. We're in a regression. The cause must be uncaused. The cause must be timeless or eternal because it created time. Time began when the universe began or sometime after that. The cause must be spaceless because it generated, it created space. Space is held in its hands. The time must be immaterial because we're talking about what created material. How did material get it? Well, material didn't create material or that's material. We're in a regression again. The cause must be immaterial and the cause must be unfathomably powerful. Look at the power in the universe and this cause created all of that power and the cause must be personal otherwise it's just matter and you're in a regression again well who created that matter and you're going to wind up with a personal cause so let me give you this statement put it up the cause of the universe then must be transcendent a transcendent personal intelligent being hey That sounds like God. So that's the cosmological argument. The universe must be a transcendent, the the cause of the universe, transcendent, personal, intelligent being. Now, the Apostle Paul used a form of this argument in Acts chapter 17. I'm not putting it up, but I'll just tell you. He tells his hearers, he's preaching to them and says, God gave us all of this so that we should seek him, though he's not far from us, For in him we live and move and have our being. You have your life in him, and all of this comes from him. All of this calls to you to seek God. So the cosmological argument argues convincingly that an intelligent being who exists before and outside and above the universe is the cause of the universe. That, my friends, is a very good reason why I think you should believe there's a God. I can't not believe I, I, I can't imagine that all this just spontaneously generated. Uh, there's got to be a cause like the one we described. Let's go on to our second reason why we believe there's a God. It's the teleological argument. You've already anticipated this. You've come to this intuitively, but let's give you the terminology, the teleological argument from the Greek word telos, which means end or goal. What it means is everything was created for an end or rather everything has a purpose or rather everything has design. This is the argument from design. The first argument cosmological is the argument from beginnings. It all had to come from somewhere. This is the argument from design. Look at it. It's got 
so much design in it and stamped all over it. The teleological argument says that the universe, from micro to macro, gives every appearance, gives every reason to believe it has been amazingly, carefully, brilliantly designed. And by the way, humans have the capability to look at something and figure out, was that designed or not? We can do that. There are, there are actually people who have developed canons of that. Here's how we can recognize design. And we recognize design. A form of the cosmological argument is found in Psalm 19. King David of Israel used it and gave it to us. It says, Psalm 19, please. Drum roll, here it comes. We're still waiting for Psalm 19. We're having trouble with Psalm 19. We're going on. I'm going to read it. It says, there it is. The heavens, it was worth waiting for. The heavens declare. They're up there just talking all the time, all day, every day, and all night, every night to everyone on the planet. The heavens are talking and shouting and declaring what? The glory of God. There's a great being. He's amazing. And the sky above proclaims his, what's the next term? Handiwork. There's design, there's a maker, there's purpose, there's telos. This is the teleological argument in the Bible. King David never heard the teleological word, but he intuited this thousands of years ago. And he said, look at the universe. There's a maker, there's design, and day to day pours out speech. It's not a little eyedropper. I'll give you a little evidence I'm here. Dink. No, no, no. It's pouring out speech and night to night reveals, reveals, reveals knowledge. Their voice goes out through, through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Well, that's King David's form of this argument. Um, it's all just talking to me. The teleological argument, there's design. But what kind of things are we talking about? Where do we notice design? Well, everywhere, in everything. So you want me to give examples from everywhere and in everything? No, that would be a little too much. Let me give you a few from the micro and one from the macro. Evidence from design in the micro, the small thing, it shouts design. Probably the best, scratch probably, the best example of this that we know of in the universe is your brain, is our brains. Some of you more than others, but it's, it's your brain. And uh, no one questions this. The most complex thing we have found to date in the universe is the human brain. It's baffling, like the best computer scientists and engineers doing their best work, creating those powerful and fast computers on the planet can't begin to rival the human brain's three pounds of wiggling gray matter inside of there. It's just, it's baffling the human brain. Or another example of design in the micro is the human DNA code. Oh my goodness, it's code. Somebody has said it would be volumes and volumes and sets and sets of encyclopedias full of code that somebody made to create human life. And you carry that, that code that somebody wrote in your DNA. Who wrote it? We know more than King David knew about things. We know more than, than uh, the Apostle Paul knew about things. We knew now there's this amazing code written on the very small parts of our being. And these serve as, as amazing examples of divine in the universe on a micro scale. What about design on the macro scale? I love this. I love this part of the sermon. I hope you'll listen to this part of the sermon. 
It's probably, where do we see design macro? It's in this thing that scientists call fine tuning. Have you heard about fine tuning? Fine tuning means the conditions for life on the planet, for life to occur, for life as we know it to exist, the conditions of all kinds of things. We're talking about things in the areas of physics. The conditions for life to occur are so finely, exquisitely, beautifully, amazingly fine-tuned that if they were altered the slightest bit, any one of them, there would be no life on the planet. One says that uh, it's created with such amazingly narrow parameters with such precision and delicacy that it literally defies human comprehension, change things, any number of things, by one part in 10 billion, and life simply could not occur in our universe. Well, what kind of things are we talking about? British physicist Paul Davies has calculated that the odds against the initial conditions being suitable for later star formation, and it's out of star formation that we get carbon, and all life is carbon-based on our planet, the conditions for that to happen is a one followed by a thousand billion billion zeros at least. That's how finely tuned things are. And again, what kind of things? Well, things like gravity, electromagnetism, the laws of energy, the balance of various kinds of matter, radiation, neutrinos, normal matter, dark matter, antimatter, and dark energy, the formation of carbon again. Even the tiny bits of atoms are also incredibly fine-tuned. It just staggers us. Alter again, alter any of these things by one part in 10 billion billion, and there would be no life in our universe. The fine tuning of physics is just amazing. And we've only known about this rather recently. Again, David didn't know this, but he intuited. Paul didn't know about this, but he intuited. And all of this leads many physicists to agree with Paul Davies, who is a physicist. He's an agnostic about a designer. There might be, there not, might not be. But he said this, and I love it. He said, everyone agrees that the universe looks as if it was designed for life. He's not a Christian. He's not a follower of Jesus, but he said, we all agree on this. It sure looks like there was a designer. Well, then how do naturalists, people who believe there's only nature, there's no God, there's nothing divine or supernatural, how do naturalists explain the fine tuning? Well, some say it's just fortuitous chance, like the universe rolled the dice and it happened. Darn, look at that. It happened. It's fortuitous chance. Well, that's an incredible chance, all right? Most of the physicists say, no, that can't happen. And um, here, here's one of the leading views now, and it's becoming more and more popular. Many, many, many naturalists would agree with a view being championed by a physicist at Caltech named Sean Carroll. And I've listened to quite a bit of Sean Carroll. I kind of dug it. Took a lot of notes. Was fascinated by it. But it's all bunk. How does Mr. Carroll deal with the incredible fine-tuning of the universe? He and others with him have now posited what is called a multiverse. That is to say, there is not just this one universe. There is an infinite number of universes that have been here for all eternity. So given infinite universes from all eternity, everything has happened in the slightest variations from one another. So for example, Mr. Carroll actually says, I listened to him say this, he says, Right now, in another universe, there's another you. Sitting in Trinity Cornerstone Church, pardon me, sitting in Cornerstone, right where you're sitting, but instead of wearing brown socks, that you is wearing red socks. There's another one in green socks. 
There's another one that has two noses. I'm making this part up. You know, there, there are just infinite varieties of everything available at all places because poof, there are infinite universes. I think he's pulling a rabbit out of the hat. What do you think? It's like, uh-oh, we're backed up against the wall. How do you explain this incredible fine-tuning? Ah, I have a rabbit in my hat. There are infinite universes, so every possibility has occurred. By the way, between the service, our drummer said to me, hey, Pastor Steve, here's something about that. If there are infinite universes, then maybe in one of them there's a God who's the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because <laughs> every possibility has occurred. Kind of cool. All right, I like that. Now recognize, when they talk about multi-universes, they are not doing science. They're the guys who say, we can only do science. We can't have a God. We can't have miracles. They're, they're, they're citing a miracle. They're making stuff up as they go. It reminds me of a term, and I love this Latin term. It's deus ex machina. Deus ex machina. What is that? I first came across that term because I dig motorcycles. And this is a motorcycle company in... Um, Australia, thank you. I wanted to say Argentina, but I knew that ain't right. All right, they're in Australia, but they're, they're also in the United States, Los Angeles and other places. They make some really cool motorcycles. Not the kind I want, but some really cool ones. They're like hipster motorcycles. They're like in the city, cafe racer style looking motorcycles. They're slow. They're expensive. They break a lot. Like, don't buy one. But they named it Deus Ex Machina, which is really clever because what this means is God of the machine, or a machine that comes in and acts like a god. Here's where it came from. This is more than you want to know, right? Uh, so in, in the Middle Ages, if you're a playwriter and you wrote a great play, but you didn't think ahead enough, and three quarters of the way through, your protagonist is in trouble, and you don't know how, given what's in the play, how to get him out of trouble, what you would do is you'd have the gods reach in and pull him out at that point. So when they would put the play on, they actually had machinery. They'd have like a big post and a lever across it, and some guys are pulling down on the other end, of the, and they would lift the actor up out of the stage and out, and they called that, they did a deus ex machina, and it would be like cheap play, you know? They ripped us off. I think what we're doing here, I think what Mr. Sean Carroll is doing qualifies as a deus ex machina, is like, uh-oh, we're in trouble with the universe. We've discovered this unbelievable, incredible fine-tuning. How are we going to get out of this? Instead of a God reaching in, it's going to be infinite universes reach in and save us. Well, leaving multiverses aside, logically, the best explanation for the amazing design is, as you've known since you were a child, an amazing designer. And with that, the words of the Apostle Paul agree. Let's look at Romans 1, 19 and 20. He says, for what can be known about God. Stop. So there are things that can be known about God. Well, where do we find them? How do we know them? What can be known about God is plain. It's not obscure. It's not hard to figure out. It's not, oh, if you're a scholar, maybe you can get there. No, it is plain because God has shown it to them. Now, God's pretty good at doing what he does. If God's showing you something... He's pretty good at showing it to you. It won't be like, well, I can't quite see it. Can you turn it up a little more? No, you can see it. Let's go to the next slide. Uh, for his invisible attributes, namely, and Paul names several, there are more, his eternal power. Yes, you're supposed to look at the universe and say, wow, there's something above and beyond the universe, and it's powerful. 
it made all of this, and his divine nature. It can't be matter. It can't be stuff. It's got to be something above, something transcendent. It's got to be a God. And this, Paul goes on, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Every single human has had massive access access to this. No one will arrive at the last day and say, well, Lord, you didn't give me anything to go by. Lord, I didn't have any evidence. No, Paul says, ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, there's a maker. I can tell there's a maker so that they are without excuse. So there's the cosmological and the teleological arguments for believing in God. You should believe there's a God. I mean, I mean this politely, I love you and I want to be kind to you, but you're crazy if you don't. You're just nuts. And the Bible talks about people hardening their hearts. Why do some people not see all this invisible attributes clearly? Because you can harden your heart. And, and like a scale goes over your eyes, the eyes of your soul, and you, you can look at this powerful evidence and say, I don't see anything, I see multiverses. So let's go on to the moral argument. It argues this, why should I believe in a God? Because if there's no God, then there is no objective right or wrong. And we all know that can't be so. We all know there are things that are just right and there are things that are just wrong. And even the most atheistic people agree with that, except for somebody like Richard Dawkins, one of the biggest atheists on the planet, best known. And he argues that there is no right. He's being honest. And there is no wrong. And that's where you land. Like, read Nietzsche. That's where it lands. Read Camus. That's where it lands. They write stories about people who do atrocious things because they've come to believe, well, there's no God. And if there's no God, there's no divine law. And if there's no divine law, there's only what... You're left with what Oliver Wendell Holmes, a former Supreme Court justice, said. He said, morality is is the majority vote of that nation that can lick all other nations. That's all you have. To put it in another way, all you have is, hey, my atoms don't jiggle nicely when your atoms do that. Tell your atoms to stop it. But there's no morality. There's nothing right and there's nothing wrong. But we all know that can't be so. Can you find anyone on the planet, and I'm sure you can, who think that what the Nazis did was not wrong? We just know, we know in ourselves, that's wrong. How do you know that if there's only nature? There is no wrong and there is no right. And Mr. Dawkins is correct. This is the moral argument. So there are three reasons to believe in God, friend. You have every reason to believe in God. The cosmological argument, which you intuitively know, it all had to come from a divine being. The teleological argument, there's amazing design. There's got to be an incredible designer. And the moral argument, I know some things are right and I know some things are wrong. That's got to be rooted in the soul of a divine being or there is no right and there is no wrong. So why should you? Why do we believe in God? Well, there are some of the reasons. There are more, but you want to get to the resurrection, don't you? And you're looking at your clock saying, man, he's not going to get to the resurrection. So we turn now to the second issue. First one was why should we believe there's a God or why we do? Second one is why we believe the Christian gospel is from God. Okay. So we've gone a little ways. We've used a few of the arguments to establish that there's a great being who made us at all things. He's God. But there are many religions on the earth that claim to represent him. How can I tell which one, if any, is the one from God? 
Why should I believe that Christianity is the one that comes from God? So that's a good question. Here's how. Here's how. Let me put this up. Among the world's religions, and this is true, only the Christian gospel is rooted in an event, a historical event. Either it happened and Christianity is true, or it didn't happen and Christianity is false. And you know what the event is, right? It's the resurrection. Only biblical Christianity is rooted in something that renders it falsifiable. Let's figure out if it's true or false. What do all other religions do? Here, I'm not kidding you. I'm not exaggerating. Every other religion on the planet starts like this. You have a guy who has some thoughts. And he puts his thoughts out there and people believe them or not. Take the prophet Muhammad. Now, maybe there are some Islamic friends with us. Bless you. We love you. would like to be near you. But you ought to think about this. Where did Islam come from? The prophet Muhammad claims that he was up on a mountain in a cave and an angel appeared to him and spoke to him on numerous occasions over, I forget, it's like 23 years or something. And eventually they gathered all those up and put them in order and put them into a book. And that's the Quran. So where did the Quran come from? A guy in a cave who says an angel talked to him. How can I falsify that or find if it's true or false? What objective evidence can I look for? There's none. There's nothing. It's just a guy. I could go into a cave maybe I'll, and start a religion. We're going to call it Steveism. All right? And here are the sayings of Steveism. And you believe them or not, and we spread them in the earth, and Steveism becomes the big thing. That's how every other religion, Hinduism, Buddhism, you name them all, they all come from somebody had some ideas and they wrote them down. Not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity came from an event a historical event that either happened or did not happen. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you can objectively test that event. Here's how, that, here's how it goes. The argument for biblical Christianity from Jesus' resurrection goes like this. I'll put it up. They'll put it up. If Jesus rose, this is from William Lane Craig, who's a contemporary uh, apologist or defender of the Christian faith. If Jesus rose then we have a divine miracle on our hands, which would argue strongly that the teachings of Jesus Christ and his apostles are from God. Like, how do I know which religion? How about the one whose founder raised, rose from the dead? How about the one whose founder uh, experienced this amazing, amazing uh, resurrection, this miracle? So there are powerful reasons to believe in biblical Christianity. They're rooted in the resurrection. I'm eager to tell you some more about why we believe there's a resurrection. But first, I have to wait again, a true story. This is a story about a man named Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was very intelligent, is, is a very educated man. First, he went to the university and got a degree in journalism. And then he went to Yale Law School. Anybody heard of that place? Yeah, I guess there's some pretty smart, smart people. You don't get in there unless you're really smart. He went to Yale Law School and got a degree in legal studies. And then he landed a honey of a job as legal affairs editor at the Chicago Tribune. That's a pretty impressive resume. This has got to be a pretty bright man. He's trained. He's highly skilled at sifting through evidence and figuring out what's true and what's false. And Mr. Strobel, an atheist, was not at all friendly to biblical Christianity or the claims of Jesus Christ. Then... Something unthinkable, something awful, something terrible happened in his life. What was it? His wife became a follower of Jesus Christ. And he couldn't stand it. Like, 
this is not the kind of woman I want to be married to. This is the, not the kind of image I want for myself and our family. And he wrote, quote, I was mad and I wanted my wife back. I decided that the resurrection was the key to this whole thing. And I set out to prove that it was all nonsense. So Mr. Strobel put all his Yale law investigative talents to work and he spent almost three years studying it and at the end of three years studying all sifting through all the proofs for and against Christianity he believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and was saved (laughs) wow you can read about it in his book bestseller book the case for Christ he's not alone there are many other stories like him I like, I like Ian Hutchinson. I've listened to a number of talks by him, and I listened to part of one again this morning. He's a nuclear engineer and physicist who's currently chairman of the Department of Nuclear Science and Engineering at MIT. Anybody heard of MIT? That's a pretty good, pretty good place. Um, he's a serious follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he says there are lots of us in the hard sciences. There are lots of us in physics, not so many in the humanities, not so many in the soft sciences, but lots of us are believers and we have lots of fellowship. When we go to scientific conferences, we all get together and have a believers group at the scientific conference and we fellowship together. There are lots of people like Lee Strobel, lots of people like Ian Hutchinson who are very highly educated and hold high, world high posts and they believe in the resurrection. Why would anybody believe? Anybody with half a brain, why would they believe in the empty tomb? Here's the part on the empty tomb. Central to the Christian message is the empty tomb. No empty tomb, no Christianity. Empty tomb, Christianity. It's rooted in a historical event that is falsifiable. How can we falsify it? There's history. And there's logic. Here's the logic. Here's the logic that compelled Mr. Strobel to say, you know what? I believe in this thing. Here's some of it. What did the power people, what did the authorities in Rome, that would be Roman leaders and Jewish leaders, uh, what did they not want? They didn't want Jesus risen from the dead. They did not want the Christian message to spread. They wanted to hmm, stop the spread. It's like, this stuff's COVID. We got to stop this, right? So they set out to stop the spread. What did they have at their disposal? What was their like nuclear option to stop the spread? All they had to do was go to the tomb where they put Jesus' body, roll away the stone, bring the body out, hold it up by the scruff of its neck and say, there's your rabbi. He's dead. And Christianity would go poof and be gone. But Christianity did not go poof and be gone. And a whole pile of people believed on the resurrection. Now, we know with certainty that the people in power wanted it to be gone. Why didn't they show the body? There have been theories. There have been attempts at explanations. Like one theory is, well, they forgot which tomb. All right, I think I can find my way back to a tomb that I was there Friday night and Sunday morning. They weren't stupid. Another theory is, well, the disciples stole the body. All right, well, they were cowards. They were cowering. They were hiding. I don't think so. Another theory is, well, Jesus didn't really die. He just swooned. He, like, passed out. And three days later, he woke up, and he rolled the stone. Yeah, good idea. And got himself out and passed the Roman guard and disappeared. 
Another theory is somebody paid off the guards and the disciples did and they sneaked in and took the body. Yeah, but that was the guards would face the death penalty if they let the body go. None of these theories work. And after sifting through all the theories, Mr. Strobel and many others like him have said, you know what? The only reasonable explanation for the empty tomb, the only reasonable explanation why the power people didn't produce the body and stop the spread is that body was gone. And Jesus arose. It's my hope that you will believe there's a great being who made you and all things. He's the God and father of the Lord Jesus, whom he raised from the dead. And as Paul says, by that, thus giving proof to all. The resurrection gives proof, gives proof to all. 2,000 years ago, there was another man who was not favorable toward Christianity. His name was Saul, and he became Paul. When he was Saul, he hated the Christian church. He hated believers. He was dragging them into prison. He, he got permission to go into city after city and into, into um, synagogue after synagogue and drag out the believers from among them, put them in chains and drag them down to jail. Uh, and yet he became a believer because he saw the resurrected Jesus. And here's what he wrote, 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers of the gospel I preached to you. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Keep going. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. That is, you don't believe me? Go into town and talk to them. Run up to Jerusalem and find out. Though some have fallen asleep. And then he goes on to say, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, the apostle Paul, who had been the greatest foe of Christ, became the greatest preacher of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it amazing? Why did he do that? Because he saw the resurrection. All right, here's the word everybody loves, conclusions. We're going to draw this to a close, and I have two statements to make and a scripture to read as we close. Here are the two statements. The first one is, friend, there is just every reason why you should believe in God. And unless you've been hardening your heart, unless you've been stuffing that in a box and sitting on the box and acting like the box is going like this and there's smoke coming out and you're acting like there's nothing in there, there's light beaming out. No, I don't see any light beaming. Unless you harden your heart, unless you suppress the truth in unrighteousness, you know, you know in your heart of hearts, you know in your soul, there has to be a great being who made this, who designed it, who gave us morals and truth and right and wrong. There has to be such a being. And I'm just praying that if you're not believing in God or you're agnostic, I'm praying you'll maybe go by the case for Christ and read it and pray about it. Maybe read the Gospel of John and read it and pray about it. And maybe get with a Christian and say, tell me more, I wanna learn about this. I'm hoping you will believe in God. Let me just tell you this. I spent my first 17 years an atheist and then I believed in God and I believed in the Lord Jesus. Life is so much better with God in the center of your soul. Everything makes sense. Everything comes into focus, right and wrong. Things get put in their places. Your life gets sorted out. Uh, 
You need God in your life. You need God in your soul. And maybe you've been far from God. Maybe you've been running from God. Maybe you've been stuffing and ignoring God. But God is so merciful. He's so gracious. He'll take you back right now. He'll forgive your sins and cover up your trespasses because of the Lord Jesus. Here's the second thing in closing. There is every reason why you should believe in Jesus Christ. One of them is the empty tomb. There are more. We just didn't have time for them today. But there's every reason why you should believe that Jesus Christ, the Christian religion, is the one that comes from that God whom you intuit and know in your soul. He's the one who represents that God. He died for our transgressions. He rose for our justification. He ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's sitting there now with all authority in heaven and on earth, and he's ruling and reigning over the planet. And you need to believe, you should believe in Jesus Christ. I have believed in Jesus Christ. And many of these people have believed in Jesus Christ and I'm gonna speak for you all now. Tell me if I'm wrong. Just say wrong if I'm wrong, all right? We would never go back, right? Yeah, right, Uh huh? You can't drag me back. You hold a pistol to my head. I can't deny Christ, just shoot me. I'll go to heaven. You need to believe. There's every reason why you should believe in Jesus Christ. And here's what Jesus said. He's helping you to believe. Listen to John 6 and verse 44. He said, no man comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God draws people. He sends his word, he sends his spirit. They powerfully work in your heart and you're drawn to Christ. And again, he said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. Jesus Christ is drawing you. The question is, will you be drawn? Will you let him draw you to himself? You need him as your Lord. You need him as your sovereign. You need him as your savior. And I just want to say it again. Life is so much better in Jesus Christ. So today, right now, I pray, I pray that God the Father will draw you to the Lord Jesus, to God the Son, and that you'll believe on him. Believe he rose from the dead and find everlasting life in him. And if I was you and you're not a Christian yet, I'd pray something like this. Would you all bow with me and let's pray together. Father in heaven, I'm just now realizing I've been ignoring you. I've stiff-armed you. I've kept you away. But I know you're there. I know you're the creator. I know it all came from somewhere. I see the marks the clear marks of your design stamped all over everything. And I know that the tomb was empty. So Father, I'm believing. I'm believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And please, by his shed blood, would you forgive me my sins, my idolatry, my stiff-arming God, my being my own God. Please, would you forgive me? And with pardon, would you give me everlasting life? through Christ. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.